Good morning, Highland. I appreciate Jason's kind words this morning in the first service and the second service. Um, the first service, he leaned back and said, now don't blow it. And this time he said, and don't ever humiliate me. As long as he's going to lean back and tell me those things, I'm going to share those. I want to express my thanks to him and to you all for allowing me the opportunity uh, over the past couple years to share. Uh, and it has been um, uh, immense in my growth and my personal study uh, and the, just to have this opportunity. So I just want to t- just tell you that. Um, and I have to be careful how much thanks I give Jason. Um, but I'll say thank you, thank, thanks to you guys. Um, so we are in a series titled The People of God. Uh, it's been introed. We have been exploring uh, what it is that we do on Sunday mornings and why that is. Um, and so for communion, this is something that uh, I noticed that we do every week. We uh, joined up with Highland about 10 years ago, and it was one of my first observations was that communion occupies space every single morning. And if I'm honest, and this is where it's like, whoa, he's going to say this. If I'm honest, I second-guessed this. And you're thinking, whoa, what's up with that? He's second-guessing what they do. And I did. I second-guessed it. I was like, what are they doing? And why do they do this every week? Part of it was because I came from a church and from an environment where it had happened so little that if you missed it, you might not get it for six months, maybe a year. And so it wasn't something I also didn't really even hear much teaching about. And so um, over time, and being exposed to God's word, and being uh, a participator in the Lord's table, asking questions, frequency set in, and God actually began to transform what I thought and the way I thought about communion. And so I want to say there's nothing that we do here on Sunday mornings that happen because of any just tradition. We don't do things just for the sake of doing them because we have a schedule that we have to meet. Or it's just the way we've always done it. That's not, that's not what happens. We actually purpose to have some biblical foundations on what we do. See, this whole service that we have, what we call the service time, or, or, or the time that we spend here, it's all about worship. Everything we do here is about worship. Whether we're reading God's Word, whether we're teaching, baptism, giving... Singing? See, sometimes we think that singing, well, that's the worship part. But it's really not. The whole thing is the worship part. And also, when we take communion together, or the Lord's Supper. And so we start all in the same place. We've kind of said it a couple times. I just want to make sure and lay the groundwork. When I say communion, I'm speaking of the time. At the, typically, it's in the middle of our service where we enjoy the crackers and the juice And these are representations. These are not Jesus' literal body or his literal blood. And we take those and we dip them and we eat them at the corners of the room after every service or in in every service. And I say the representations because we believe that the spiritual is more real than the physical. I just want to say that. The spiritual is more real than the physical. And sometimes we wrestle with that. You know, I can touch this, or I can, I can reach out and see something. It's in front of me. I can observe it. That's more real. It, it's not. Jesus, Jesus is realer. I don't think that's a word. Jesus is the most real. 
Jesus is the realist. He is the most real. And when we participate in communion, we participate in something that is the most real thing that we can really participate in. The Bible is explicit in the meaning of communion, too. And it's something we all have access to. And I think that's great. So I want to encourage you this week, if you hear something that makes you think, go to God's Word. See what God says about communion. See what He says about what happens at the Last Supper. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to kind of go to the Last Supper and to set the stage for what happens at the Last Supper. Jesus is with His disciples, and they're in an upstairs room. Sometimes that's referred to as the upper room. This is right before His crucifixion. And this is what we call the Last Supper. And we pick up in Luke 22, 15 through 20. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. So before they took the first bite, And before they took the first sip of wine, the creator of the universe, this is his creation, he's the creator, thanks God for the bread and the wine that he made. And I find this fascinating. I see Jesus as the perfect model of thankfulness. I think there is so much that I can take from this simple act of thankfulness because the other thing I'll confess this morning I'm just going to admit this. I don't pray before every meal. I don't pray before every meal. And I've been a Christ follower for a long time. You think, oh, he just said it. He doesn't pray before every meal. I got him. This simple act that Jesus does has convicted me just this week. Maybe I should give thanks before every meal. You think, well, it's about time you get this, John. You're really old and you've got gray hair. But I literally just got this this week. I really should pray before every meal. Christ gave thanks, the creator of crackers and juice, in his case, crackers and wine. He gave simple thanks for it. In the speed of our world, and when there's a table full of children, I know how hard it is to stop and express thanks to God for everything when there's so much going on. But Jesus shows us in the most stressful of times. This was right before he was going to be crucified. In the most stressful of times, he was able to stop and give a simple act of thankfulness. Buried deep within the simple command of do this in remembrance of me is a story of rescue a story of deliverance. And also buried within this simple command is what God did for Israel and what God does for us. And so we ask, why were they sitting down for this meal to begin with? Because the meal, it goes like this. It says, then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. 
an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So why in the world were they sitting down here to start with? What was going on that night? Why was this meal special? And we see that they were having what's called the Passover meal, and they were celebrating what is called the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. And Exodus 12 tells us a whole bunch about that. And we're not going to read the whole chapter of Exodus 12, but I want to encourage you this week to try to find that. Try to find the time to pick that chapter up and read it. Read the whole, ch- the whole book of Exodus if you can. But I want to encourage you to read this chapter because it sets so much up for why we do what we do, and we are going to look at some of that. In Exodus 12:17, it reads, Celebrate this festival of unleavened bread, for it will remind you that I brought your forces out of the land of Egypt on this very day. So we see that the festival existed so they would remember what God did in bringing them out of Egypt. And we res- with respect to the Passover meal, which was just one day of the seven, we pick up in verses 26 through 27. This is specifically to the Passover meal. It says, then your children will ask. I love it when scripture knows what we're going to ask, and then it just goes ahead and tells us the answer. What does this ceremony mean? And you will reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, and though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. So what did the Passover look like? Now that we see what the Passover is, what did it look like, and how did God spare Israel? And here we read in verse 30. Pharaoh and all his, and all his officials... And all the people of Egypt woke up during the night, and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. This is the whole land. And there was not a single house where someone had not died. Think about the headlines that that would have been in our culture today, how that would have been on the news. Not a single house was spared death, okay? The Israelites took their bread dough. I'm sorry, back up. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds. As you said, be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave. All the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as quickly as possible, for they thought we will all die. The Israelites took their bread dough before the yeast was added. They wrapped their kneading boards in their cloaks and carried them on their shoulders. And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. They asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. The Lord, I love this, the Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites. Notice all their families had just experienced much death, but God caused them to look favorably on Israel. And they gave them whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth too. That night, the people of Israel left Ramesses and started for Succoth. That night, this was a quick exit. There were about 600,000 men, plus all the women and children, a rabble of non-Israelites. These were the people going, hey, we want in on this too. They went with them, along with great flocks and herds of livestock. For bread... They baked flat cakes from the dough without yeast that they brought from Egypt. It was made without yeast. Why? Because the people were driven out of Egypt in such a hurry, they had no time to prepare bread 
or other food. The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. In fact, it was on this last day of the 430th year, 430 years of slavery, that the Lord forces the Lord's forces left the land, and on this night the Lord kept his promise to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. So on this night, I'm sorry, so this night belongs to him. And it must be commemorated every year by all the Israelites from generation to generation. So this is why they were doing what they were doing that night. And at its core, we see that this meal is to celebrate and commemorate how God spared Israel from death. And it's important to make sure that we get the context of just how special Israel was to God. And I love in Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says, For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you because, uh, and choose you because you are more numerous than the other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. And he was keeping the oath that he sworn to your ancestors. And that is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So I love this picture of simple love. It was a simple rescue, but it was huge. So often we forget that it's because of his love for us that he keeps promises. It's not because of what we do. We don't earn his promises to be kept. He keeps them because he loves us. And so we see now how history has sort of set the stage. We see why they were in the upper room that night. And what was about to happen in that evening would be something that the entire world had been waiting for. Jesus would do something that was truly memorable. That night he addressed them by saying, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. And, and I really, I have to pause here because in studying this topic over the past couple weeks, I've run across so many differing opinions on just how often a church should sit at the Lord's table. And I want to go ahead and kind of address this nagging sort of age-old question and just kind of put it out of our minds because I think the answer is found in this first statement that Jesus made. I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. And you read the statement and you're thinking, well, that doesn't really tell me how often we're supposed to do something. That doesn't put something on my Google calendar. It doesn't tell me when we're supposed to do it and how often because I don't want to get that wrong. But before I tell you how often we should do it, I want to share something because, because, because you're my family and I like sharing. So I want to share, you about something, share with you something that I'm very eager about. And it's something that my household knows that I'm very eager about. Shay knows I'm very eager about it. Um, could you guys put up the schedules that I'm eager about? So this first schedule, I don't know if you can see it out there, this is the Formula One racing schedule. Okay. I'm very eager about that. The second schedule there is the um, IndyCar racing schedule. And there are 37 races on those two racing schedules. And every year, I look forward to this schedule. 
and I go out and I put those races on my calendar and I sit and I think about, okay, how can I arrange my schedule so that I can watch these races and how am I going to record them? When can I see them? Last year, Shay and I actually went to a Formula One race. This was like the highlight of all highlights of, of extracurricular activity that I could do that year. I got to see a Formula One race. And I can't tell you how eager I was to get to go to this race. We planned for months, weeks. We spent money. We planned. We made it to where we didn't have to take the kids. We could actually go to the race, just me and her. And um, I... She is eager to go because I'm eager to go, um, and I love that about her. But um, I'm eager for the sounds, the smells, the speed. And while we were there, I want to show you what we were eager for. This is really interesting. So that, in the very middle of that picture, we were eager to be in the very center. I don't even know if you can see the dot of blue or green in the very center and, and I think what's awesome about this picture is there are storms coming from the north, and there are storms coming from the south, and we were right in the middle. This was Hurricane Patricia. This was Hurricane Patricia. We got like a foot of rain. And in Formula One racing, they don't postpone races because of rain. Another picture. This was the mud that we eagerly sat in for the race to start. And the next picture are the boots that Shay eagerly wore and, tr and just walked through the mud eagerly because her husband wanted to eagerly see this race. And the last one is how we eagerly sat, huddled under an envelope, or envelope umbrella, it felt like an envelope, uh, under an umbrella, waiting eagerly for the race to begin. It was supposed to be hot that weekend, but it was so cold. And I was so eager. And I share that story of eagerness because I believe that is only a fraction of the eagerness that Christ expressed when he said, I eagerly look forward to this meal with you. And before you judge me for the 37 races that I put on my calendar and how I like live my life in some ways, you know, against the IndyCar and Formula One um, um, racing schedule. Jason, our pastor, he said not to humiliate him, but he likes the NBA, which I do not like the NBA. And they have 30 teams, and they play 80 games each. That's like 2,500 games. So I'm in good, I feel good about my 37 races, okay? I just want to say that. Sorry, Jason. So before I tell you, though, how often we should do it, I just want us to understand that when he said eager, what he meant by that. One person has described it as, with desire, I have desired. That's like desire squared. We're, we're taking desire and we're exponentially growing it. With desire, he desired. And another one says, it's, he has most earnestly desired to eat this Passover before he suffers See, I can be eager, and you can be eager to experience things that we know are going to be fun. But Christ eagerly desired something that wasn't fun. It wasn't that. Though he had joy in what he did. So, how many races could I watch in a year? How many Saturday afternoons are there? How many Sunday afternoons do I get? 
I can watch as many races as I eagerly anticipate. So how often should we participate in communion? How often should we sit at the Lord's table? How often do we eagerly anticipate it? And the more I read the opinions of those that leaned towards less frequency, that said, well, you know, you wouldn't want it to get old. Those who said, well, we need to uh, make sure that it's special. The more Christ's eagerness began to shout from the pages of my Bible. And if that's a question that you've wrestled with, I'm with you. I've wrestled with it too. Consider his approach. Consider his eagerness as an answer to how often you should eagerly anticipate the Lord's Supper. That night, he said, I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. What does this mean? We've gone from like celebrating Passover every single year, the festival, and now you're telling me, Lord, you're not going to have wine again until the kingdom comes. And see, this is huge for them. It's huge for the future of the church and for us. Because he's saying, no longer are we simply just remembering what happened to Israel in Passover. The implications have eternal worth. He's saying that I'll have this feast tonight with you, but after this, man, I'm holding out for a feast of all feasts. A feast with the whole church, my bride. And I love it when somebody says it right. I'm just going to quote him. John Piper says this. He says, I have been moved afresh by this picture of Jesus on the night before his death, setting before himself the joy of his coming kingdom, telling his disciples that what he is signifying tonight in the meal and accomplishing tomorrow on the cross will one day be fulfilled in the kingdom. Then he adds this, I'm not going to eat it until that day comes. You eat it to remember me and keep your hope strong and empower yourselves for mission. But I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till I can eat it anew with you and with all the ransomed that you will gather from every tongue, every tribe, and every people, and every nation. So every time we eat this meal together, we're not going to a funeral. And though we remember... This is not just a memorial. We eat this meal with expectation that we will eat the meal with the living Jesus with the entire kingdom. That's going to be like a huge supper. It's going to be a big deal. And that's what he's waiting for. He breaks the unleavened bread into small pieces and says, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And I think at this point, they didn't know what to do with themselves. 
themselves. I think you could have heard a pin drop in that room. Jesus was always doing things that seemed to be exactly the opposite of what would have been politically, religiously, or culturally correct. And from the very inception of Passover, it had always existed so they could remember how God spared Israel. But Jesus is saying right now in this meal, oh yeah, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that when you break bread from this point forward, you're going to do it to remember me. You're going to remember my body that was given for you. And also this cup, you're going to remember my blood that was shed to confirm this covenant. This after-dinner wine that they were having, it instituted a new agreement that is confirmed by His blood. And see, this is huge because there was no religious leader, there was no Pharaoh, there was no Caesar, there was no powerful Pharisee, there was no other person that had the authority to broker a deal between God and his people like Jesus did. See, only Jesus can hold up a cup of wine after dinner and say, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So if you're wondering why we take this so seriously, It's because this is the most important meal that was ever eaten. This is the most pivotal meal in history. And it's all summed up in Jesus' words. Jesus is simply saying, this new covenant, your rescue, your salvation, your deliverance, what I'm going to do for you, not what you can do to save yourselves, not what you've earned, and certainly not what you're entitled to, And it's not about what you've not done either, by the way. It's not about that. It's about my blood. And it's going to be poured out. He's telling you, it's been poured out for us, but it hadn't been poured out for them yet. He's telling you, it's going to be poured out as a sacrifice for you. And attached to this meal is a very simple and explicit command to do this in remembrance of him. These disciples witnessed Jesus usher in a new covenant and confirm it by his blood very shortly thereafter. So now that we have this historical view and we have an understanding of why they were sitting in the room, what the celebration was about, what the commemoration was about, how do we respond? How should we view communion? What should our approach be? And who was allowed to come to the Lord's table? And we go straight to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11.26 For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. And so when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we announce his death, yes. But we also announce his return. And I think it's easy for us to get around the notion that this announces his death. We have holidays on our calendar. We have Good Friday. We have Easter or Resurrection Sunday that celebrate his resurrection. We have Christmas It helps us remember his virgin birth. But we don't really have anything on our calendar that announces his return. I mean, 
I know he hasn't returned yet. But we do have something to announce his return. Every week, when we sit at the Lord's table, we announce his death and return. And so we can put it on our calendar. Oh, remember Christ's return. Oh, remember Christ's return. Every time we do this, it gives us that ability. First Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 28, we just keep going on the same passage. Anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So this concept of self-examination is one of the most interesting parts of the uh, ordinance of the Lord's Supper to me because it gives us a very unique freedom and a very unique responsibility to examine ourselves worthily. I think this is what makes Christianity so unique. See, this concept of self-examination helps us understand that the Lord's Supper isn't actually for everyone. And I know that kind of sounds inclusive in a way, but I want to explain that. It's a time when only those who have been invited to the Lord's table can actually participate in the meal. And we know this to be true because if everyone was invited, he wouldn't have said that we need to examine ourselves. The very fact that there is an examination presupposes that there are some that have no place at that table. So the purpose of the self-examination isn't for a church leader, a priest, a pastor, or an elder to see if you measure up. It's a unique privilege and a responsibility for you to examine and see if you belong at the table. And I also want to say, note that self-examination doesn't exist to prevent us from coming to the table. I think we easily can go there. It actually exists so that we may eat the bread and drink the cup. And this is important. It's not to stir up self-suspicion as if we're being measured up by our own means even. The purpose of self-examination exists to get us believers to the table. The simple qualification is the least grain of faith. And the good news is, is that we are allowed to sit at the table by the one who invites us. Any honest self-examination will always bring a bit of humiliation. So as you self-examine if you're like me, I go, man, I, I, really? You're going to ask me to sit at your table? I, I'm not really qualified. It does leave us unworthy. It leaves us very unworthy, self-examination does. But if not for the grace of God, we are unworthy. So before we continue to the corners of the room like we do every week, I want to give you a few questions that will maybe help you with self-examination. What does this look like? And I want to be very crystal clear on this. This is not my examination. 
This is not Highland Christian Church examination, okay? These are thoughts and questions to get you to come around the notion of what does it mean to sit at the Lord's table. This isn't like an every eye bowed and every eye closed moment. These are just questions to stir up your mind and engage in what we are about to do. Are you spiritually alive to eat this spiritual feast? Because dead men have no place at his table. Are you a friend of the host of the meal? The host is not Highland. I am not hosting this. Jason is not hosting this. The church doesn't host this meal. Christ is the host. Are you friends of the other guests? There are other guests at this meal. Are you friends with them? Do you love them? Do you love the other folks at the table? Do you believe that by faith in his sacrifice that you are justified to sit at his table because we can be justified to sit at his table? And I say amen to that. If not by the grace of God, I could not sit at the table. And these questions are not a test and they're not meant to be zingers. They're just simple questions that I want us to consider this morning. And as the band comes, I want to read something to you that I read this week, written by Charles Spurgeon a long, long time ago. And I love it when people write things that just seem to stick, and they'll stick for a long time. And he writes, That he should ever have put me among his children and permitted me to call him my father will be a wonder to me throughout eternity. See then the blessed result of this self-examination when it lays you low at the foot of the cross and makes you come to the Lord's table, not boasting, I have a right to be here, but humbly and gratefully saying, I do indeed adore the grace of God, which has made it possible that one such as I should be allowed to sit with the family of God at his banqueting table of love. And then he says, I want you brothers and sisters to examine yourselves till you come to this conclusion. We are not perfect, but we believe in Jesus. We are not yet fully assured, but we have a humble hope in him. And we are not the strongest of his warriors, but we have his life in us and we do know him and we trust him. And the fact that God took our nature upon himself shall be as food to my soul. And equally, that being found in fashion as a man, he took my sins upon himself and suffered in my place, shall be generous wine to me. I will drink it down, I will feed upon it, and I will live by it. Then you will have joy and gladness in your soul. And this supper will be what it really is. No funeral feast but a banquet of delight with all the friends of Christ. Let man examine himself with the view that he may so eat and so drink when he comes to the table of the Lord. So if you're here this morning and you're like, you know, I I don't know if I'm a friend of Christ. I don't don't know if I'm a friend of the church. I don't know where I am there. I'm going to be standing over here. Or if you've got questions about what we're going to do, and you want to know before you take the crackers and the juice to make sure that you're worthily... I can't make you worthy, by the way. Only he can. 
but I can certainly have a conversation with you if that's something you'd like to have, and I'll be standing over here. But if you are a Christ follower this morning, you're invited to the table, and we're going we're gonna to have that time now. Lord, thank you that you give us the opportunity to sit at your table. And Lord, we eagerly anticipate what's going to happen in the next couple minutes, Lord. Lord, I pray that it is stirred up in us that this is something that we can put on our calendars and that we can announce your coming and we can remember your death, Lord. And that it's only by your grace and your love and your ability to keep your promises to us that we have a shot to sit at this table. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.